Well, it's a great honor to be with you today from Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. And if you'd like to jot down a web address, I uh, actually have learned so much from Tony and continue to. And he taught me uh, how to have my own URL shorter. And I just made that with my Twitter ID, .me. So if you go to the website, wfriar.me, and then slash our hashtag, which is CPP7, you can access all of the slides and the links and the resources that I will be sharing today. But that's not the only way. How many of you went to the Mobile 2012 conference here uh, in April? That was a wonderful experience, and I have probably never seen as many QR codes used in sessions with people holding up their iPads and smartphones to be able to scan uh, their, their QR code. So if you want to take out your device right now and scan the QR code, you can do that. And I've also been experimenting, kind of making some chirping noises here. I'm not sure. I may have to go to the handheld mic. I've been experimenting with this. How many of you have uh, either the ability now to send text message alerts to your students, or you have um, you've been in a class where you've, you've been sent text messages? Anybody have the opportunity? This website, Selly, is a free site that allows you to create a group. And so if you want to right now get out your mobile device, Want to just go ahead and send the text message here? You're going to text West Info, and it will just send you a link that you'll be able to get on your mobile device. I don't know what the exact statistic is, but studies have shown that people who receive a text message are extremely likely to look at it really quickly. <laughs> Our school district, Oklahoma City Schools, has been using um, um, blasts on you know, phone calls. They call it the robo caller. You know, Call, but uh, universities that I've been attending until just this last semester have also been sending alerts. It's a little weird to be living in Oklahoma City and uh, be registered in Lubbock, Texas, and get these snow and ice alerts that morning. You don't need to go to class today if you're, you know, going to be in Lubbock. But anyway, those are two different ways to get resources. And maybe most exciting, I've created a free discount code, 100% code, for my ebook, which I published last year, and I just used the Twitter hashtag. It's CPP7. So that is good all day long. And I can publish an iPad version of the book that normally sells for $15 and uh, has 17 videos in it, and there's a Kindle and a note version as well. Um, so um, that will be available until midnight Pacific time today. Today I'd like to talk about three things, and I'd like to begin talking a little bit about our communications landscape and um, talking about the digital divide and digital natives and some updated statistics. I mean, we know things are changing fast and, you know, kids are growing up with these tools, but uh, I think it's appropriate to kind of start there. And then I'd like to talk about why we should use media. Now, I'm speaking to the choir here, perhaps. Did anyone come here against their will? Okay. This looks like a great way to earn 30 hours of professional development. What a beautiful place. Um, but, you know, we all work in environments where there's a lot of folks who question why we might want to do something different in education. Why should we use media? Isn't this a distraction? Aren't you just trying to entertain kids? Don't we just need the three R's? Why should we do that? So we're going to talk about that. And lastly, we'll talk a little bit about how we should use media. And I want to hopefully inspire you with some ideas, not only for this week, but as you leave this beautiful place and go back to your home and, and your work, wherever that happens to be, ways that you can be modeling the use of media as a multimedia communicator and you can encourage other teachers and students to do the same. So I drove yesterday uh, from the airport, got here about 2 o'clock, and uh, sort of went off the, uh, the, the Google map path to get to the hotel here and uh, saw this 
beautiful landscape. And I love geography. It was one of my majors in college, and I love landscapes. And let me tell you, you have some pretty dramatic landscapes here in Arizona. I am an Arizona native because I was born in Phoenix. But my dad was in the Air Force, and we only lived here about two months. So I can't, can't say that I really remember a lot of my Arizona heritage and history. But I'd like to use as a metaphor today a map called the Waltz-Singular map. And I'm going to give you about 60 seconds to turn to your neighbor, use any device or resource at your disposal, that can include your neighbor, but it could also include another device, to try to learn as much as you can, or a little bit at least, about the Waltz-Singular map. Go, you have 60 seconds. Sorry. How many of you got somebody at your table who Googled Waltz-Singular map? Okay. Yeah, some yeah, shaky hands, but we had some hands logged on. What did you learn? Couldn't log on. The password would be Sedona. Sedona. Okay, so lowercase Sedona. Helpful information for those wanting to uh, Google on local wireless. For those of you that have 3G connectivity, or another way to get online, where you have the password, um, or we're referring to a couple things that you learned. 1507. 1507, okay. America. America used for the first time. And somebody up here say Library of Congress. Most expensive thing ever purchased by the Library of Congress, $10 million. More expensive than an original copy of the Declaration of Independence. In fact, I met a gentleman this last week who scanned an original copy of the Declaration of Independence. Is that cool or what? It was in private hands and still is. He said, did they share the scan? I said, no. This is an amazing map because it was the first one to show North and South America completely surrounded by water. Uh, last week I was actually at a conference for indigenous archives and libraries, um, mainly in North America, but there's other places. And they're speaking to folks. We have 39 tribes in the state of Oklahoma. Um, I know you all have um, tribal nations here in, in Arizona as well. It's interesting, isn't it, to consider a map you know, and a Eurocentric map and think about, you know, so many different things, so many different uh, issues. But the Waltz Mueller map um, was amazing because Balboa was credited with actually being on the isthmus of Panama and looking across and seeing the Pacific Ocean a little bit after this. And this was based on the writing of um, Amerigo Vespucci. And, and the reason it's called America's Birth Certificate is, is because scholars say this is the reason why we, we call North and South America the Americas today, not Colombia, the Colombians or something like that. What I love most about this map are these two words, terra incognita. And I'm going to suggest today that the unknown lands of learning open up before us. Would you have been a person who had gone west to the unclaimed territories if you had lived after the Civil War time? Would you have left the comfort and security and sure knowledge about meals and water and you know all kinds of things for the uncertainty of, of what might lie ahead? I love the Russell Crowe movie Master and Commander. You've seen that. I mean, just think about the courage and bravery it would take to set out, you know, in, in open water, uh, but not just in, you know, the 1500s or the 1800s. I mean, even today, piracy is alive and well. This is a book I'll come in to you by Toby Lester. And last September, I was in Lewiston, Maine, for a Google Geo Teachers Institute. 
it was two days of just learning about Google Earth, Google Maps, and Google SketchUp. And Toby Lester wrote his whole book, The Fourth Part of the World, about the Waltzmuller map. And it's an incredible tour through history and through um, Renaissance thinking and the ways in which maps reflect our worldviews. And what I'd like us to think about is the role that we can play in our schools and in our homes and communities as digital learning pioneers. The, uh, the young lady on the left is my middle daughter, Sarah, when she was in third grade. And one of the things that Oklahoma elementary schools oftentimes recreate in third grade is the land run. Remember Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman's book, uh, Far and Away? which came out a number of years ago. That's what it was depicted, was this idea of a land run. And I think just like pioneers of an earlier day uh, tried to prepare as best they could, but they had to be willing to take risks for benefits and for opportunities that would come in the new lands that they were venturing into. The same thing is true for us. And so I want to commend you for being here this week, not only for earning 30 hours of professional development in such a beautiful place, but being willing to try new things and to be a pioneer because none of us grew up with Wikipedia at our fingertips. None of us grew up with media production options that could be shared worldwide as, a, as, a, as an option as, as students are today. So how many of you have heard of Mark Prinsky's Digital Neighbors, Digital Immigrants article from 2001? Uh, really? Um, it, not everybody's heard of this. It, it, you know, something that's made the rounds a lot and people like to talk about it a lot. Uh, this is a video that I saw recently and uh, it's just like a minute and 20 seconds. But sometimes when we think about this idea of kids being digital natives, think about this idea that even at a young age, kids have different expectations. <laughs> Obviously, this is a child who has spent a lot of time around touch devices. But how many of us have put our hand up to a screen or a television and expected it to respond? Have you done that? Have you found that? Um, I don't know about that last part. Steve Jobs says, could be a part of her OS. I'm not sure if I agree with that. Um, but I want to mention this because today in this room, more than likely, um, we don't have any digital refugees. Do you work with any digital refugees? Folks that just don't want to move forward with new ways of sharing information, new ways of accessing, new ways of learning? This was an article, a little graphic I made, quite amateur. <laughs> An old program called Claris Works. I don't know if you remember that. I love Claris Works. Claris Works Draw, baby. Bring back Claris Works. Wasn't that awesome? Um, you know, my point was it's not all about just natives and immigrants. We have refugees, but we also have an opportunity to be bridges and to bridge generations because we're in the midst of this huge, gigantic change. And so I want to share a few statistics kind of about our landscape. This is an old, old slide. <laughs> in 2011, uh, which shows what's happening in 60 seconds on the internet. And there's more here that we can digest, but you know, this number is, I'm sure, a lot bigger. You know, every 60 seconds, 600 new videos to YouTube, all this different information that's being shared. I found a good infographic on uh, social times that talked about just how many people are online. And um, before I share these, though, let's think about the digital divide. What kind of digital divides do you, the teachers you teach with, and your students face? Okay, because we're about to talk about connectivity, but the digital divide is real. How do you face digital divides, and how do your students face digital divides? 
Take 60 seconds. full screen, you don't have to have any kind of special software on your computer, just go to it, uh, set the time if you want, and the bell rings. Sometimes it gets folks' attention. So, Tony's got the microphone. Raise your hand. Uh, volunteer your neighbor. It's time to volunteer your neighbor. Who, whose neighbor shared something worth repeating about the digital divide that either you face at your school or that your students face? Come on, you brave. Everything changes so quickly. <laughs> yes. So there's a digital divide, it's sort of the resistance in wanting to change so quickly. Because I just learned this way to do it, and now yes. it's changing again. And the technology changes. Like I just learned how to do this, and um, I learned how to do it this way, but now it's changed. Like this. Right. Just the pace of change and how quickly things are changing uh, puts up divides and barriers because. You know, we feel like we can't be relearning it all the time. I can't be relearning it every day. Okay? What else did somebody say about a digital divide? What does a digital divide mean in the context? Got fingers pointing over here to the maybe the polka dots. Um, we first talked about age difference and how often we learn from our students. Um, and then we also talked about socioeconomics. Okay. So we've got generational differences and then we have differences of access as well. We may not have devices. Kids may not have devices when I say, oh, look at how many people on a smartphone. Well, guess what? Other their kids may not. And then we also have generational differences as far as eagerness or willingness to embrace the new or, or not. Okay. Anybody else um, want to share something? Um, yeah, for oh, me. Oh, I'm just going to go back to that microphone. I'm going to go back to that microphone. I'm going to go back to that microphone. For me, it's all interesting because even though we come from, actually, we're the largest district in the state, we just got our Years last year, I upgraded to 2007. So I would have kids, and I was running 95 in my classroom. Oh my God. They come in with a flash drive and they couldn't download on our computers. You know, because they were not using 2007, we started running 2005, 2003. So sometimes it's because of funding, it's actually reversed. Right. So in schools, I think we have one back there. I don't know if it was volunteering neighbor or uh, schools are particularly challenged, and that's why we have a lot of folks now talking about bring your own device, because the kids are replacing their devices and removing their devices at a much faster rate in many cases than we are in schools. We're struggling to <coughs> Another thing is that um, with differences in usage, the kids who use computers to play games and so on have a very different knowledge base than the kids who use them mostly for academics, which is really weird. <laughs> Let me ask a little follow-up to that. How would you say the knowledge base is different for those kids that are gamers or that are gaming? They're much more visual and much less um, discriminating. Do I dare say that? Do you mean they're more accepting of what they see and yeah. not critically thinking yeah. about them? Oh, that's, yeah. that's interesting. All right. Well, thanks, Tony, for uh, jumping up and, and sharing the microphone a little bit with some good folks. I think that this is something we need to process and talk about in our communities. My dad, my grandmother, on my dad's side, was born in 1903, and dad used to say, gosh, let's think about how many changes uh, Graham, as we call her, saw. Because in 03, the Wright Brothers were 
right? And, and, and cars and transportation was changing, and she died in, I would say, 91. So she had seen the space program, the shuttle program. But gosh, things are changing so quickly. I wonder if we're going to see more change in our lifetimes, or my children will see more change in their lifetimes than even my grandmother, who almost lived for a century. This particular infographic talked about how people spend their time online, and it said that 30% of the world's population now is connected. About how incredible that is, that 30% of the people on our planet, now it doesn't mean we're all talking together, but it does mean that when I share something online, there's some ifs here. If someone has a device, if they have connectivity, and if it's not blocked, right? Because I'm sure there may be a little content filter in here in Arizona, like we have in our schools in Oklahoma. It's possible that they may be able to see that. This infographic um, was published here also in May, and it talks about images and the power of images in advertising, uh, and also just as far as attention. Now, how many of you have a Pinterest account? This is kind of poor because there's a small text. Look around the room. Okay, Pinterest account. Okay, those of you that have Pinterest accounts, why? Why do you have Pinterest accounts? There's so much that how is it presented in a visual form. How many of you have Pinterest accounts because you like interior design and you like to see different ways that rooms or built houses or architecture? Anybody have a Pinterest account for food? And you like sharing recipes? You like sharing, okay? Wow, Pinterest is really powerful and popular. And one of the reasons is it has this ability to, to shift to visual. We've also seen some things happen recently with Facebook, with the timeline overhaul. By the way, is anyone else in the room pleased that when you were an adolescent, your peers didn't have a device in their pocket, which could not only record photos and audio, but video and put that into global distribution. Yeah. If you think of a few moments that you're glad that they didn't have an opportunity to stop. So Facebook has been revised, and some people have been really shocked because suddenly this timeline has made very visible images that might have been posted a number of years ago. And we also had the acquisition of Instagram by Facebook here recently, and people are saying, what? Why? Why would they do that? Well, images affect articles, and you know, is anyone here a Flipboard user on your iPad or iPhone? Flipboard, I would say, is the sexiest digital newspaper I've seen, and I'm not talking about sexy in any kind of a racy way. I'm talking about a really amazing way to experience news. Why? Because I can subscribe to different channels, I can flip through them, and it converts them all into this very visual, easy-to-navigate environment. So this study showed that articles that have an image are 94% more likely to be viewed than ones that don't. And also in terms of search, the numbers of um, links, the numbers of pages that include images grab our attention and keep our attention much more than the, the, the text-based pages, the pages that are not filled with media. So let me ask you this question. I'm going to give you a minute and a half this time to talk at your table. What does this mean? If I'm living in a Pinterest world, if we're living in a visual world, or an increasingly visual world where information is being shared digitally as well as on paper, but images have this power, what does this mean for my students and I? Okay, you've got 90 seconds. Go. Uh, my partner and I were talking about how you not only need to 
hook the kids at the beginning. You know, in college, you have to, what you hook at the beginning lesson for the first five minutes. You have to have the beginning hook, the middle hook, the end hook. And you have to be prepared to engage them the whole way through the lesson and the whole way through the unit, the whole way through the curriculum to make sure that you're appealing not only to their visual stimulation, but also making sure that they have academic learning as well. Okay. So it definitely means we need to use media to teach, but I really believe it doesn't mean we need to become edutainers. Uh, there's a difference in thrall and engage. You know what the root of the word thrall is? It's a Greek word, thrall, meaning slave. To enthrall you is to enslave your mind to my will. I would offer up that we will be much more successful helping students learn, especially for the long term, if we seek to engage them and not simply inform Now, I'll be completely honest with you, in this you know, hour and 20 minutes that I have with you, I would like to enthrall you, okay? But it is a fallacy and a, and a hopeless wish to think that I'm going to be able to enthrall adolescents every day for 45, 55 minutes at a time when they're sitting in a small chair, you know, small desk back to back. So, we definitely need to use media. We need to think about how we hook kids. But I think we also need to consider how we're engaging them in active learning because it's not just about watching the media. In fact, if kids want an engaging media experience, I would offer that they probably could go home and have cable television, the History Channel, and Discovery Channel, and other things like that than probably what we could provide in our classroom. So it's more than just enthralling, it's also engaging. Okay? Somebody else will volunteer a thought about what this means. Or volunteer, I know some. Art teacher, I think we need more art classes to explain, you know, visual vocabulary and and understanding principles of art. And, and, and my my husband just said last night he teaches at the college level art that he's teaching a graphic design class and out of 27 students, one of them have had a uh, basic drawing class. So there's something really wrong. Uh, our literacy has shifted, unfortunately, backwards a little bit. Not only on my political soapbox, but too often in our, in our time today. But um, we do all need to know not only about how images are, are being used to manipulate and spin. Are we going to have any spin, by the way, in the political front today? <laughs> do you think? I heard someone up here talking about kids coming up and saying they found something they weren't sure whether to believe it or not. You know, this idea of media being powerful to communicate and to, 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 uh, to convince us of something, but the whole literacy that goes with images. I've not met George Lucas, but I've heard that he, one of the things he says about high school is nobody talking the grammar of film, because film has a grammar to it. Images have a literacy to them and the ways in which we communicate and use them. So yes, absolutely. You heard of, you've heard of STEM, you've heard of STEAM, Okay. Steam is putting the arts in with STEM as well. It's not enough to just do the science, technology, engineering, and math. We need to recognize the value of the arts and the importance of the arts, not only for intrinsic reasons, but also for communication. Let's get somebody else. Proximity is important, so Tony, if you'll weave your way through the crowd, I bet you'll get a volunteer that's Somebody talk about the student impact in addition to the literacy pieces about art and content. Well, I want to challenge.
challenge you to talk about this this week and to go back and have conversations about this with parents and with teachers because the hands-on how do I do it is really important, but the why and, and the discussions about you know, what we need to do different is really important. I'm going to offer up today, thank you, that communication with media should become the new normal in, in our classrooms. And what I mean by the new normal is it's something that we all do. We all grew up with the five-paragraph essay, with the textbook, with the, the written exam, with the bubble sheet. We still have those things. But today, in the world outside of classrooms, we dramatically see how media shift has affected so much of the ways people communicate and access information. This is my youngest daughter who just finished second grade. And last summer, she illustrated my book. She used a little app called Brushes for the iPad. And I love brushes because not only does it, of course, let her digitally send and share the image, but it has a play button so you can see exactly how she drew it. Play it back. And, you know, I had her make a little invoice for me. She charged $20 a picture. So I was going to say, with that $120 but where is that going to go for her? She may be getting that at home, but she should also have the opportunity to become media literate at school. So why should we use media? Um, to tell you this story, um, sorry. I want to take you back to 2007. I, I had an opportunity to help facilitate a video conference in Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, for the dedication of the USS Oklahoma Memorial. And at that time, I met the Instructional Technology Director at the Poonam School. Have you ever heard of the Poonam School? Okay. Someone who's our president right now has been to Mark Obama's graduate Poonam School. It's an awesome school. Uh, but what Judy talked about was how they justified the one-to-one -one initiative when they talked to their board. Have you heard this before? When you have a hammer, all problems look like a nail. <laughs> one of the things you're going to do this week is learn new tools for your toolbox. And you may have known how to use um, you know, iMovie or Movie Maker to do something, but you're going to use some new tools to be able to communicate and to create. And we need to expand our repertoire of tools that we have for communication. Alan Kay, who helped develop the graphical user interface, worked at Xerox Park, was pivotal in the One Laptop Per Child project, you know, has this quotation about the predominant technology. You got pencils? That's what we're using. We're using pencils. We got paper? But the predominant technology is shifting now faster than ever. And so what Judy Beaver and others at Punahou used back a decade before that, so this would have been probably back in the late 90s, was this book, Classroom Instruction That Works. How many of us have had a workshop or some kind of professional development by the more Probably a lot. And uh, while this isn't their most recent book, uh, The Art and Science of Teaching is, is, the, is, the, is the newer book, this book, Classroom Instruction That Works, has a lot of really good suggestions for what we need to do with technology. Did anyone here have a fantastic teacher who was fantastic because of the film trip? Do you remember the old tape projector? Do you remember how hot it used to get? Whoever think you can set fire to instructional materials? Anyone remember that hot bowl? Okay. Do you remember 16 millimeter film? Do you remember what a big deal it was to get that thing going and to check it? I mean, all the stuff that we had to do. Our teachers that were great were never great because they used technology. Oh, the overkill. Oh, the film. But with what they did, the ways they engaged us, 
relationships they have with us. And so all of these things that Rosano talks about in terms of classroom instruction that works can be further amplified in many cases through technology. What happens if you have a technology-related task? So let's say you're going to have some kind of a movie project, and your students end up doing a lot more research and a lot more um, practice and rehearsal when they report. What's going to happen to their learning? It's probably going to increase because they're spending more time on tasks. Um, if we provide recognition, I'm sorry, that's clipped off a little bit, but we provide recognition on a classroom learning blog or on, on a district-wide learning uh, website showcase, um, what happens when more parent-student interaction and dialogue happens about education? Is it a mystery? When we get more kids talking with more parents about what's happening in school, parent involvement is a key for increasing student achievement. So there's not any panacea, there's not any silver bullet. Technology is not the silver bullet. But the degree to which we can do these things, things that we know work, and we can use technology to amplify them, I think we're going to see some really strong results. And so one of the projects that I've started to work on now, I call Mapping Media to the Common uh, Core, or Mapping Media to the Curriculum. You have to forgive me for not doing my homework. Is there some of Common Core story? Yeah. No. So you don't celebrate learning with this holiday, but you jump on the Common Core. Oh, you do? Okay. You didn't have to re-educate you. What about daylight savings time? Aren't you guys like conscious objectors for that? Okay, that's state of Oklahoma as well. Texas is not. There's like, what, three or four states still that are not. We need to map media, I think, to our curriculum to a greater degree than we have in the past. So there are a lot of different products that our students can create, that we can create. And we're going to be talking about flipping our classrooms this week, right? And let me offer up to you that flipping the classroom doesn't just mean the teacher creating all the media, doing all the work. Because if I'm doing most of the work, guess who's doing most of the learning? You're looking at it, right? So our students, to a greater degree, as we flip classrooms and we blend our learning, need to be creating digital examples of what they know, digital show and tell. All of us have seen Bloom's taxonomy. I bet we studied that when we were going through teacher certification. And in 2001, it was revised. All these words were changed, I would say, to verbs. The chair of my dissertation committee said, Jerry's, what do you think she taught high school? <laughs> English, of course. Okay. So whatever, Jerry's or verbs, they're action, right? Remember, explain, apply, analyze, evaluate, and create. <clears throat> there's no silver bullet. You ask your kids to create narrated slideshows, there's no guarantee on the wonderful products. But there is an increased likelihood that they will not only do the lower level knowledge and comprehension tasks, they'll also have to do higher order thinking. Because it is harder, I would say, to make a 30 second public service announcement than to write a five paragraph essay. I've got to do a lot more synthesis and decision making about what to include and what not to include and how to share it in that kind of an assignment than I would in a five paragraph essay. I'm not saying don't write a five paragraph essay. But I am saying, let's think about the ways in which we can use different kinds of assignments that use media. I gave a presentation in March up in Dartmouth, Maine, where they've been doing the laptop initially for 10 years, just about why we should play with media. And I'm not going to go through all of these in excruciating uh, detail, but I'm going to, to talk about some of them briefly. Creative problem solving is a really, really important thing. And we haven't typically done a great job of that in school. 
to help the kids learn to be creative problem solvers. Uh, I'll argue creativity is intrinsically valuable too. To this week, today, you're going to create, you're going to make. I really think as human beings, we're, we're created to create. And so um, I, I want to share just some brief words of wisdom that uh, my daughter about two years ago shared with relation to art, and the point that was made a little bit earlier about art in school. to be able to express ourselves creatively, but also solve problems. 
This feedback loop of making something go across the screen and respond to another sprite, as it's called, is different than just making artwork that goes on the wall. Um, and this program ought to be in all of our schools. Does anybody have a Scratch Club at your school? Please check out Scratch and consider talking to people at your school about starting a Scratch Club. Can this be used in the regular curriculum? Can I show you about the water cycle or about mitosis? Or Yes, of course I can. But an after-school club where there's more autonomy and there's opportunity for kids to kind of follow their own passion and their own creativity might be the best place to be able to use this. As kids at your school learn about Scratch and they learn how to do this, they can bring that into the classroom and share that with the teachers. We'll talk about one more and then we'll take a break. Um, I want you to turn to your neighbor and I want you to share a hands-on project that you did in elementary school, middle school, or high school that you still remember today. Some kind of project where you had to make something, you had to build something, you had to create something. Okay? 60 seconds. Okay? Hands high. How many shared a project from middle school, junior high days? Nope. How many shared a high school project? How many shared a project that wasn't part of the regular school curriculum? I think a lot of people didn't Folks, we need to make stuff as learners. And it doesn't require us to have technology, but technology can be a very powerful amplifier when we make things. One of the unfortunate things that's happened with No Child Left Behind, Race to the Top, and High Stakes Accountability is this idea that we don't have any time to do a project. Okay? Because you just gotta do the worksheet. Because that's how we know kids learn the best, is when we put a lot of pressure on them and we make them fill out a worksheet. No, that actually isn't what we know about learning. It's not what we know about development. And unfortunately, the political climate that we live in is very toxic for authentic learning. I know you won't be able to do a project with your kids all the time. But my encouragement to you, as we think about media and tools that we're going to be using, is find ways to let your kids be more creative and to make stuff and to do show and tell, to do digital show and tell. See, it's a myth that after first grade or kindergarten, suddenly we are not interested in show and tell anymore. We are. In fact, I hope you'll get a chance to do show and tell with people you'll work with in your, in your project rooms this week. Because if you ask me or I ask you to share something about a topic you really care about, you know a lot about, you're passionate about, wow, I'm going to learn a lot. It's almost impossible for me not to learn from you when you're sharing something you really love. So let's give kids more opportunity to make things. Passive learning experiences are easy to forget. And how many times have we sat in the class where we did things that we probably forgot before we fell asleep that night, much less the next day? So those are a few of the reasons we need to play with media and we need to let our kids use these computer tools. We are going to take a break. This is a 15-minute we we love to feed you, so just at those doors, there's some food and drinks. Uh, but we'd like to continue in 15 minutes. We'll have the second half of our opening keynote and uh, some other announcements. Well, before we jump back into the regular slides, I thought I would give you a quick preview. This evening, I'm going to do a session on uh, tell a story and five photos. And last week in Houston, in uh, Fort Bend ISD, which is in Sugarland, 
Um, we, we did a session on screencasting and five photo stories. And so I just thought I would show you two of the examples. Now, we actually narrated these. Um, some people will call this a visual charades activity. So this is an activity where you're going to take something, in this case, a fairy tale, and represent it in five images with your group. Okay? So we actually did add some audio. So three bears and five photos. Once upon a time, there were three little bears who ventured out of their house to explore the forest. While the bears were gone, Goldilocks came knocking. Goldilocks sampled all the food, and in the end, find, found that she liked the small bowl of porridge the best. Unfortunately, she was clumsy, and she broke the chair. When Goldilocks went to sleep, the bears came back and found her and scared her to death, so she ran away and never came back again. <laughs> okay, so we made that in 10 minutes, uh, the whole thing, recorded everything. We used a, an iPad application called Explain Everything. Um, this kind of activity can be used as just a, a visual only, a photo only activity, or you can add narration to it as well. I'll just show you one more. This was the Three Little Pigs in Five Photos. Once upon a time, three little pigs in their homes were scared because a big bad wolf was approaching them. The wolf came to the first little pig's house that was made of straw, puffed and puffed and blew it down. The wolf came to the second house, which was made of wood, puffed and puffed and blew it right down again. But when the wolf got to the strong house, made of bricks, she huffed and she puffed and she couldn't blow the house down. <laughs> so of course, the wolf immediately had a stroke and a heart attack and died. The pigs rejoiced. <laughs> Um, take just a minute and uh, talk at your table. What value do you see to doing a project like that that involves still images and not video, doesn't involve text, and involves some narration? Okay, talk about the value of that. Okay, we'll get a, we'll get a couple people to share some thoughts. Um, the website that I mentioned, Mapping Media for the Curriculum. Um, this is in progress. This isn't all finished yet. Uh, but it just lists some different things that we can create. And so here's the example of a story in five photos. It lists what it is, the workflow. Okay, what are you going to have students do? How are we going to have to set up? What's the lesson steps? And then how can you do it? What are the tools? <laughs> One of the interesting, I don't know if I, if I have this link on here. Kirby Alexander is, a, is a, uh, an instructor at the University of North Texas who I taught with a couple years ago, 2010. It took him three years to get this article published in a refereeing journal called Five Picture Charades. Um, what do you see as valuable about this kind of an activity? Talking about having students taking a concept, taking an idea from the curriculum, and then having to share it with the images. I know this front table said some great stuff, but I heard necessarily put some of Volunteer for sure. <laughs> <laughs> right. We uh, were talking about with our ELP learners how uh, they're forced to practice using their English and rehearse what they're going to say and say it clearly and match uh, what's happening in the picture with vocabulary words that they might be in text. Okay. How many of you have recorded yourself um, doing something and listening? Listen to it. Okay. Was it a painful experience? Including <laughs> national board certified teachers through that process. Okay? But can it be a helpful and insightful experience? Definitely. 
And somehow the narrated slideshow lets us break this very complex and, and multifaceted project into different pieces that are somehow a little more manageable than, and accessible too than maybe something that was just a whole video project. I love video projects, but I really like narrated slideshows. Anybody have another thought about value of this? Anybody talk about confidentiality and privacy? Is that an issue here? Do we have student names in this? No? We didn't identify who this was. Uh, some districts are now, Kansas City Public Schools is an example, giving an opt-out form to parents. If you don't want your child's picture or want to be published, opt-out. Otherwise, it's just part of what we do. Okay? We share work. Any other thoughts about this? Is this something that you can do? Yeah. yeah, it absolutely is. And let me tell you, mobile devices really can reduce the number of clicks it takes to make something happen. And I'm not saying I, I think we should have poor quality things that we just do quickly, but I call it the ethic of minimal clicks. If you can take a process like making an area slideshow, and that takes 20 clicks instead of 50, guess what? Even if I know how to do it in a more complicated way, I'll be more likely to do it more often, and my kids will be my name to do it too. So, another reason we need to be working with media and using media is to provide a better window into learning. How many of you have a website of some kind for your classroom? Okay, that could be a blog, that could be a wiki, it could be a site on the school site. I want you to think about that website as a window into your classroom. Is it now, I'm not saying we want to have cameras and live video and everything's online. No, I'm not saying that. But I am saying that we can provide opportunities for parents, for grandparents, for other teachers, other students to peer in to what we're doing in our classroom and what our students are learning. And we all are having to deal with high stakes accountability. I just heard Brian talk about loving charter schools and this just like race to the top all over again. I'm not at all optimistic educational policy-wise for this election. But hopefully at some point we'll have a national change. And even if even when we don't have a change, we can decide our assessments and other you've got high stakes tests the kids have to take. You know there's some stuff we're gonna have to do, but there are assessments that we can craft and that we can provide for students. And I think assessments should be windows into what we're doing. This is a, an art show, uh, a photographer's uh, portfolio of an art show as they're showing off their work. And all of our students at some point, this is just Russ Pryor's guess, okay? At some point, maybe it's in 10 years, maybe it's in five, maybe you're gonna do it this year. At some point, all our kids are gonna have digital portfolios. What does that mean? That means an online space where they're able to show some of what they know, some of what they can do. We've done this for a long time in the art world. You know, can we assess creativity? Oh my gosh, we can. Yes, we do it with portfolios. We do it with performance. We do it with rubrics. So this is a little video clip that I recorded in September when I was in Maine. This is an amazing smart guy named Kern Kelly, who's the director of technology for his uh, district in Maine. And I want you to hear, listen to Kern a little bit, talk about digital portfolios, and think about how this may connect to the students that you teach, the grade level you teach, the content area. Hi, this is Wes Fryer in Lewiston, Maine, with the amazing Kern Kelly. I can ask her questions all night long, but I'm not going to. 
Uh, you were telling me a little bit about how your students are using iPod Touches to do their digital portfolio documentation, and how, how's that working? Uh, what's going well, uh, one of the things that we really emphasize in our district is um, having students being in charge of digitizing their own work, taking ownership of it. Um, one thing that typically happens is uh, teachers do a lot of the work, especially when it starts digital stuff, they try to collect it and they're playing around kind of you know, being the secretaries for the students. And we're working our way to do as much as little of that as possible as far as getting to the point where students are in charge of their own work, they're handing it in digitally, that's how they're digitizing it. Um, the iPod Touch specifically, um, we use students will uh, use the camera built into it, uh, basically a classroom camera, uh, one camera, one uh, iPod Touch to the entire room, and they'll hand it around, take pictures of their non-digital work, let's say it's artwork, let's say it's math, um, send it to themselves, um, iPods, um, have the ability to email photos right directly from the iPod, and we use uh, Picasso Web Albums, which can receive an image right directly to a single email address that's unique for each student. With that, the kids can put it right directly into their digital portfolios. The teacher basically just checks it, but they're not doing any of the legwork, they're not doing any of the work behind it. Awesome. Now, have you dabbled with, with audio doing that, or, or video? Uh, and, and what are you going to tell people maybe a little bit about where they're going in the portfolios? Because you guys have been working with your Google Sites for a couple years? Yeah, yeah, we use Google Sites for our digital portfolios. Not exactly, and audio is the same thing. Uh, we started audio a couple years ago, before we had the iPod Touch with the camera built into one. Uh, with audio, we actually, just with our something great uh, students all have one-to-one laptops, and uh, last year, two years ago, we started where our course kids would record themselves using GarageBand, and then upload their recordings into their own web portfolio using Google Sites um, to basically put them on their own website that the teacher could store around and click on and play. Um, the first time we did this, I asked the kids, you know, what did you think? Was it harder? Was it, you know, was it easier for you? And the, the student that I talked to, uh, a cute little young girl, very precocious, was like, yeah, Mr. Kelly, this was okay, but it was a lot easier when Mr. Lancaster did all the work for us. Which, of course, makes sense, right? When the kids, you know, are the ones that are actually doing the legwork of it. Which, of course, that's what we want. We want them to kind of know how to do it and kind of digitize their own work so as they take it forward, um, they're building their portfolio as they go. So are they able to upload the MP3 just right into Google's site? And does it give a player? Or how does that work when they put that on their page? Yes, exactly. They upload it as an attachment, and there's a, a Google gadget, which is a Google audio player that's built right into it. So all the teacher does, and the next step, if you want to get this far, is they go to a, uh, the teacher's website that has a Google form built into it, and they copy and paste the link to that address. So the teacher from there end just sees a list of a spreadsheet with all the different links on it, and just click each student's name, it pulls up. At that point, they can play and listen to the audio piece. This does two things. One, it digitizes the work, obviously. The kids are digitizing themselves. They're the ownership of that. They own that. It also does where, um, as they go forward, the, they'll say the high school course teacher can now listen back to what they were like in 8th grade and 7th grade and so forth. So they want to hear how much progress they've made over the years. It's already done. It's built right into a form. Awesome. We want to do a shout out to Cindy Lane, who is being our videographer today. <laughs> Don't say yes, we're going to do two hours of this. Um, I want to ask you about students at conferences. Your students at BLC and other places have been doing a lot. What is the, the benefit of that and what encouragement would you give to others who might have had students coming to conferences helping with professional development? Uh, I can't recommend it enough. We do a lot of it. Um, I think it's a hugely important piece of this. One, um, some of our techiest kids that are you know, savvy as far as the technology stuff, we as education, we're not giving them a lot. They can figure a lot of stuff out for themselves, generally speaking. What we need to give them then is the opportunity for them to communicate with the people, for them to have audiences, for them to be able to present in front of 30 teachers. I mean, imagine how important that is. Uh, you mentioned VLC. We had one of my presentations there was on students as tech support. Uh, money will never have enough of in, in education is tech support. We still don't have money for that. But there are students in every single school in the country in the world that are capable in the sense of they have the technical skills, but they don't necessarily have the maturity. And that's just a good way for them to learn that. I mean, for them to kind of put in situations that are real. Um, and maybe having a student as a teacher webmaster. 
It gives them teaching us maybe a little bit more hesitant of them, you know, having our webpage, only well, if a student kind of does a technical piece of it, they can do the content piece of it. What a win-win for everybody. I think communication skills too, right? You've talked to students a lot about just how you would interact with your tech support. Absolutely, being very professional. That's the thing. And, if, and I want them to learn how to do that in a place that's very safe. You know, they talk to the teacher all the time. It's okay if they make a mistake. Well, that's how we learn how to do that. Bring, okay, I'm going to cut that off. Talk at your table about that. How could you see digital portfolios working into what you're doing now? When you're having students do what could be digitized, and where would you start with that and say if you have the capability for your students to digitize some of their work? Go. In this video, and the idea of digitizing student work is one of these things that's a really big concept. And I know that, well, I can suspect none of us this year are going to be at the point where, hey, we got it all together. All our kids are digitizing work. It's just, you know, is he doing digital portfolios now? I, I think we all need to be taking baby steps in this world. Okay? Because we can have a better window, a more authentic window, into what students know and what they can share, what they can do with the technology. We may not be fully implementing digital portfolios this next year, but I want to challenge you to think about how you can move in this direction. So as you're working in your groups on your projects this week, as you're learning about movie making or making a narrated slideshow or creating audio or whatever it is, think about how that can be representing student work. Now students can be the ones taking ownership and the lead creating the media. We need to be able to create media and share it too. But just like Kern said, if we're the ones doing all the legwork for kids, guess what? You know, it's pretty easy for them. If it's real easy for them, they may not be getting a lot of the learning out of it. So, uh, let's talk a little bit about standards. The Common Core standards have some good redeeming qualities. Okay, I wish that we were not still, you know, paying millions of dollars for a high-stakes test and I don't know if we've had these kind of sessions in Arizona, but in Oklahoma we've had these sessions where they share the possible questions and just basically this whole fear thing. Oh my gosh, look how bad your kids are gonna do with it. You know, get this question. But um, there are good things in the standards, right? A focus on writing across the curriculum. Do you have any writing teachers in the audience? We're going to write more, and we're not going to get to be better writers if we don't practice. You know, Stephen Crashton, who authored The Power of Reading, tells us, research indicates we learn how to write mostly by reading. We read good examples of literature, but we've got to write more. By the way, have you had an opportunity to work with uh, an undergraduate recently and assess writing skills? Has anybody been shocked? You know? Oh my gosh! Really? You graduated from high school and these are your writing skills? We need to be better. We can do better and technology can help with that. So, evidence-based writing, oral communication skills, critical thinking skills, those are all good elements of the Common Core. And most states now have some, uh, either, they've either adopted the ISTE National Educational Technology Standards or they've adopted a form of them which has an emphasis like Common Core on creating digital products, collaborating, solving problems, and communicating with media. So, what happens when I Google you today? What do I find? Have any of you Googled your own child or grandchild? Did anybody swap a story about a Google search or a Facebook search that was a little bit surprising? No? We've had students in Oklahoma who, because of things that have been on their Facebook page, haven't gotten into sororities and fraternities. We had an OU football player here a couple of years ago that actually got completely kicked off the team because of some video that was online. But, oh, was that the technology that was the problem? No, it was probably the choice that was made, you know, a couple of years ago, which is now recorded, which was a video. 
So we hear about that negative side, but what's the positive side? Okay? Uh, anybody going to apply for a teaching position in the next five to ten years? Doesn't happen everywhere, but increasingly employers are Googling to see what they can find. How are you going to take ownership over your digital footprint? It's by publishing stuff. And I'm going to encourage you, you've got to comply with your district policy and all that, but I think you need a professional site. I think all of us as professional educators ought to have a professional site. Yes, maybe I'm going to keep working with UConn Public Schools that I've been on contract with this semester. Maybe I'll work with them for the rest of my life. I don't know. But chances are things might change. So think about your digital footprint. The footprints you leave in the virtual sand of, of, of the desert, the ocean, you know, uh, whatever, online. You need to take ownership of that, and I do too, by publishing and claiming work. So let's talk a little bit about brands. This photograph was taken in the summer of 2010 in Afghanistan. And I could have just put words on the screen like Taliban, Afghanistan. And it might not have been as powerful as looking at these images of these young ladies getting their EXO laptops, their one laptop per child laptops, which they got down to, I think, $180 a piece. Countries have agreed to buy them in most cases for everybody in the country to, to get them. It just wouldn't have been the same if I had just put text on the screen. Nobody tells your eye where to start with an image. And while it's not true for me to say your eye processes information X hundred times faster, we do know that there are hundreds of neurons that connect the ear to the brain. There are thousands that connect the eye to the brain. So there are very good reasons for me to use media if I'm communicating and I want you to get it. I want it to stick. This is a fantastic book by Gar Wilms. Anybody read this book? It's not a Let's All Become Buddhist book, okay? Uh, it's called Presentation Zen. Its goal is to end PowerPoint abuse in your classroom. Has anyone else here suffered through a student PowerPoint presentation before? Would you like to improve that experience? Perhaps completely transform it? We'll talk a little bit about that in the evening session today. I'll show you a very clever comedian video that talks about that. But this book speaks to this idea of using large images. One of the best places to find images, and I do this for almost all my pictures, is Flickr Creative Commons. These images are licensed up front for reuse. The permission has already been granted. So when you see me using images, a lot of times you'll see a Creative Commons link in the corner. The Walt Disney World app, of course, was bought at the small books in the owned by the Library of Congress and we own it as a people. So that actually is Let's talk about stories. I'd like to tell you a story about myself. This is Alexander, and at the beginning of eighth grade last year, his English teacher asked him to write a poem. And he typed it and they put it on the wall. It's too small to read there. But that's where it would have stayed unless well, he had been asked to share it online, which his dad thinks dad said, here, so he put this on the wall. So we had a lot of fires last summer. We had some fires in Arizona. Our fires in Texas. In fact, some of our friends in Oklahoma City have evacuated at one point uh, because of fires that were on the east side of I 35. And so, this was a poem. I'm not going to read it to you. I'm not going to share you the whole thing with you. But this was a good poem. And he shared it online. Who do you think Nana is? <laughs> this is my mother who lives in Kansas, in Manhattan. And how often do the grandparents of your kids get it? 
get to interact in some way about a whole bunch of science. Does that happen very often? Probably not. It doesn't happen very often for my kids either. And so we got a comment from Nana, you know, saying how reminds her of the Yellowstone fires that destroyed our land on this cabin road in 1988. Got another comment here. And then we have Joyce McGreevy. What a powerful narrative poem, Alexander. Marvelous use of figurative language and suspense building repetition. Thank you for sharing it with us. Keep writing. You have a gift. Best wishes, Joyce McGreevy, author, Sierra Club Books, and editor of National Geographic School Publishing. What? This is the first writing assignment that my eighth grade son is turning into his English teacher and somebody, the people who work for National Geographic, just sit around and talk about student work. There's something they do. And there's actually a great project that I want to encourage you to check out called Comments for Kids. And it's now switched to Twitter. Tony talked about the hashtag for our conference, which is just pound sign or hash sign uh, CPP7. If you go to Twitter right now and search for comments for kids, you can see a live list of links to websites that teachers around the world are sharing. And, uh, have you ever seen the Shrek 1 DVD, the opening menu where Donkey's jumping and says, Pick me, pick me, pick me. It's kind of like that. Okay? Look at me, look at me. If you work with free service teachers or any kind of in-service teachers, show them this. Ask them to connect to real classroom writing teachers that are using their blog and then talk about good comments. I don't suppose this ever happens in Arizona, but in Oklahoma, sometimes adults have problems commenting appropriately on the newspaper. <laughs> it's a good thing to talk about appropriate comments. And who that reflects on, right? And how is it that we can leave a positive comment? So we need to be telling stories like that local. That's a story about my son. You need to tell stories about your classrooms and your schools where something as simple as a blog comment made a difference. I mentioned engagement a little bit earlier. No doubt, we are having lots of devices proliferate. And by a show of hands, how many of you are in school districts today that let kids bring devices and then can get online? Okay? Raise them up. Okay, that's definitely not fast, but that's, you know, maybe a fit. Does anybody know if the school board is looking at that as a possibility? Okay. Um, I don't think we should cop out, right? Because, I mean, what do we do with pencils? Do we, do we say to kids, oh, you can get a pencil, well, too bad, they're learning to read. If you teach fourth grade like I did, I'm going to shoot. Okay, we'll borrow it here. You have this picture. Check this out. No, we'll provide one. Here's your pencil, you can go. We're going to have an obligation in this digital divided world to not just expect kids to bring these devices, because not everybody is, and, and we can't expect that. But here's the thing. The menu for demonstrating what you know and what you understand has exploded. And we're going to have to have some kind of device that's digital in order to take advantage of many of those possibilities. I won't read you this whole quotation, but this is such wisdom. This is a freshman in college in Maine, in Macmillan, graduated from Yarmouth High School. And basically what he's saying here is, don't tell me to do a movie project. Don't tell me, do a explain everything project. Don't tell me, do a voice to project. Look for mastery of content. Let students select how they're going to show you what they know. Let them have some ownership over the product they produce. Assess on mastery learning objectives. Not just, oh, we did a PowerPoint project. Was PowerPoint appropriate to your task? 
Maybe you needed to add some narration to that. There were different tools. But let's stop thinking about teaching technology and giving a technology assignment. And instead, let's use the technology that's appropriate. I like this menu picture. We don't have this in Oklahoma, by the way. This is outside of Yarmouth. We can't always provide choices, but sometimes we can. And the ownership that kids take, the motivation they take, can be different when we provide an option. Turn to your neighbor and share food that you were forced to eat as a child. There are some things we're going to have to do in school. I think you're just going to have to learn the multiplication fact. I think you're going to just have to learn. Okay? You want to go to college? I think you're going to have to take the ACT. I think you're just going to have to. You want to go to grad school? You're going to have to take the GRE. But sometimes we can provide a choice. And I want to encourage you this week, as you go into the next school year, think about choices. Let's talk about fun. Is anybody interested in having some fun? Now, this story is about my daughter who finished sixth grade this year, Sarah. She was supposed to read The Hobbit last summer. And she actually had four other books that she had to read. And she didn't. So, what were our choices when we are three days away from the start of school? <laughs> Do you know Spark Notes? You know Spark Notes, right? Devise assignments for kids and assessments, by the way, that can't just be Google. Right? Why can't just Google to get your answer? Yeah. It's amazing how many schools are still assigning kids vocabulary words and they let them type them, and I want it 10 times or 20 times each. I mean, seriously. Well, we looked at Spark Notes, and what we did was uh, my son helped and, and my youngest helped. We went ahead and did the Hobbit five minutes. Now, I'm not going to play the whole thing, uh, just a little excerpt. But this was recorded on an iPad, and it was recorded three times, not because we got it right, but because of this statement, it's never done, it's just do. Okay? We had to get this done. As you watch this, I want you to think about what it took to create this little excerpt of The Hobbit 5. The Hobbit is the story of Bilbo Baggins, who lived a peaceful life in Hobbiton. His hobbit until he decided to embark on a great adventure. One day, Gandalf, the wizard, came to visit Bilbo and brought a band of gold-loving dwarves to his home. Gandalf convinced the dwarves, led by Zorin, Oakenshield, to hire Bilbo. The past ended when an army of goblins arrived on the scene and started the battle of the five armies. This involved goblins, elves, men, and dwarves, and the eagle finally arrived preparing to save the day. I know what I cut out of there was the, the high level yeah, graphic effects there. You know, we had little pieces of paper saying, ow. What did this take? Well, it took some Legos, and thankfully my son is a big Lego minifigure collector. It took writing, you know, it took a script. Yes, we used a free teleprompter app for the iPad. Um, we recorded with that. But, you know, we had to have props. We had to come up with, with things. We had an opportunity to be creative. And I think my daughter probably remembered a little more about the Hobbit doing this and recording this multiple times than if we just, you know, said we read this this different. So using media can be fun as well. And lastly, we can archive history. 
Somehow or other, my dad who grew up in Powell, Wyoming, which is just uh, on the west side of Nelson Park. Is that right? East side. Um, east side. By Cleveland. Had this book in our garage. I don't know how it, it you know, went through multiple moves in the Air Force and all these things. But this little scrapbook, which we found last fall, had a photograph of him in third grade. And so the classmates that he was in. And it had his report cards from elementary school. So here in the first six weeks, it says, Tommy does lots of good school work. There's some numbers over here, too. Nothing for the second six weeks. But then it said, Tommy has been a little careless about forming some of his letters. Uh, it's good work. I think he gets in a hurry. Nothing for the fourth six weeks. Now, for me, the most valuable part of this side of the report card is what signatures, right? Visual signatures of, of both my grandparents on my dad's side who passed away. But here's my thought. What should my youngest report card in 12th grade look like? Okay? What should it look like this year? I know my report card doesn't look like that. But it really should include more media and a deeper, richer window into what she knows and what she can do than what can possibly be reflected on paper. So, the last thing that we're going to talk about two minutes, which is I think it's about uh, <coughs> time, three minutes, is how we can become better communicators. And I'm going to share a couple different apps and challenges with you. I want to encourage you to play with media, to play with digital text, to play with images, to play with audio, to play with video. It's the only way you and I are going to get comfortable enough to face adolescence in front of the classroom or however Whatever you teach, right? You've got to get comfortable with it. So here is a specific challenge for you. Who's heard of the Daily Create? DS106 is an awesome, awesome course on digital storytelling that's taught on the East Coast. And they have a wonderful thing called the Daily Create. Every day, they post something different for you to create. Today, it was called Mood Inversion. Read something profound and make it sound painful, or vice versa. Okay? And they use SoundCloud, which is a free website, a free app for Android and iPhone, and they tag it for that day, so you can see what other people have done. There's usually 15 or 20 people, it's worldwide, who are submitting these. You can also go to Twitter, and this is one of the few Twitter accounts that I do have text directly to me, and I don't do this every day, but I do it every once in a while. And so I received this message for the Daily Creates Challenge. You can go into the archives and see what they um, have done in the past. And last year for the K-12 online conference, which is a great free conference that happens each fall in October, one of our keynotes were Jim Broom and uh, Tom Woodward, who told all about BS106 and what, what happens there. Um, another person who's behind this is Alan Levine, who's known as Cogdog online, and he's the author of the amazing 50 Web 2.0 Ways to Tell a Story, and they're, they're uh, helping share this you know, every day, new challenge. Here are two apps that I recently found that also are daily creative challenge apps. Remember, you can link to these from our uh, main link from all this top of that down. This is called InstaCC. It just has a different challenge. I don't know what it's called, but challenge. But this is a challenge. This one's called Idea Mix, and it's another idea of having a creative challenge. You can give your kids a creative challenge. Okay. Is that going to be on the test? Is that going to be in the assessment? Probably not. Okay, the state version is going to collect. But we need to find ways personally and with our students to develop our ability to communicate with media. And not just the visual media, 
And so those kind of challenges could be in one way to do that. So let me close with these thoughts. Who has heard of Khan Academy? All right? I do think Khan Academy is exciting. I think it's Bill Gates' favorite example of technology integration to share. And it was featured on 60 Minutes in March, and more and more folks know about it. And yes, if you're doing math, studying math, learning math, it's great to know about these screencasts that have been created. But let me suggest that simply serving information is nowhere equivalent to learning any more than just serving food is equal to becoming a gourmet chef. I didn't put the slide in here, but you all may have heard it at the Mobile 2012 conference. Uh, MathTrain.tv is a website of elementary kids in Santa Monica, California, and actually one of the former students of the teacher here is going to keynote K-12 Online in the student voices there. These are all student-created slideshows about math, student-created screencasts. Too many people today, I think, believe in the power of technology rather than the power of words and the power of passionate people. And I'm going to bet you money, I will put my money on the table, that you've got some other passionate folks at the table with you right now. They're passionate about learning, and they're passionate about kids, and they're passionate about education. That's why they're here. I mean, this is a nice place to be for a week, but you're here for those reasons. So, I want to encourage you to picture the importance of relationships at school, and it's all talk about technology, to remember that it is those relationships which we form with students and the connections that we have to individual kids. That's my son in third grade with a third grade teacher. Those are the things that make the biggest difference. Technology can be a huge amplifier. And we've heard it amplify the negative time and time again in our communities. And the newspapers will keep on doing it. Why? Because it'll bring eyeballs. It'll bring people to see the latest headline. But what do you want to amplify in your classroom? I would encourage you to amplify great examples of learning and to have fun flipping your classroom and playing through the other side. Thank you very much.